Welcome to Autism Weekly, the podcast that discusses autism news, current events, and inclusion. Each week, we welcome a guest to the program to share their unique perspective and expertise as it relates to the fascinating world of autism. I'm your host, Jeff Skabitsky. I'm the founder and president at EBS Kids. I've been in the field of autism and applied behavior analysis as a clinician and advocate for nearly two decades. Back to school is right around the corner. For parents of children on the autism spectrum, that might mean adjusting to a new schedule, developing a relationship with new education professionals, and creating an IEP, Individualized Education Plan, for the upcoming school year. This week, we're excited to talk to psychologist Taryn Nixie Springer, or Dr. T for short, about how parents can start the school year off right. Dr. Nixie Springer worked as a school psychologist for years and is now working for ABS Kids, providing diagnostic assessments. We're excited to hear her tips during this transition period that so many find so turbulent. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. As a school psychologist, I'm, I'm kind of curious if, if you ever had that wow moment with a family that came in for an IEP that you realized they don't know what they're missing. They don't know how to get their child care. They don't know how to navigate this system. Oh, well, so I think honestly, the overwhelming part for parents is and I'm taking a bigger perspective than just the school system, there's too many systems. Um, so like there's the school system that they have to navigate on if their child qualifies for regular ed or um, accommodations or special ed services. And then there's also the system outside of the school. And does their child qualify for services outside of the school? Um, and the systems don't always work well together and they don't talk to each other and they may or may not even know about each other. Um, so I think that that's kind of the hard part for families to navigate. Um, so I run it, I've run into that more often if the child is more severe on the need for like wraparound services, like this is what the school can bring, this is what um, an ABA provider can bring, this is what your medical team can bring, um, but also getting everybody to communicate on the same page is sometimes difficult to find that good mix of clinicians, teachers, parents um, that are all willing to at least open the lines of communication because there's so many barriers within that mode of communication on releases of information and willingness and also humility um, for talking to people with their different levels of expertise. I'm so, so glad that you that you drew attention to that because treating a child or young adult who identifies autistic, it's a team approach. And going back to the beginning of the school year where you're starting a whole new team and yes. you're trying to get everybody on page, how can, how can parents make sure that that's happening? I mean, how, what is the first step? You're going back to school. What is it that they need to be doing? Well, so I think the first step is knowing who your teacher is for your child. Um, and I, I mean, 
there's there's a whole spectrum of parents, just like there's a whole spectrum of children out there. Um, and it's a balance for parents to be involved but not be a helicopter parent um, because helicopter parents are not necessarily welcomed in the school either. So how do you balance that? And I think one of the ways that you balance that is by providing needed information, but recognizing that the teachers are always the experts in their subject area. So if that's a first grade teacher, she's the expert in teaching first grade curriculum, but the parent is always the expert in their child. So how how can that parent give that knowledge to the teacher so that that teacher can succeed in first grade curriculum with their child attending that class? So it really should be information that's applicable to the classroom setting to that child. Um, and that could be done in a lot of different ways. I mean, it, it could be done informally just by meeting the teacher. Um, a lot of teachers are fantastic about responding to emails. Um, and so I always, so I have a child that is not autism spectrum, but is on an IEP and has a brain injury. Um, and so I've utilized lovely email multiple times um, with just connecting with the teachers. And in my experience, both being as a parent um, and then in the schools and working with so many teachers, they like that communication. They don't like being overly challenged or being told what to do, but they really like the support of, here's how my child can succeed so that you can succeed, that collaboration. I th you know what, the way, the way that people communicate, the ability for people to share that information, it probably empowers the teacher more than anything yes. else. And it's yes. not prescriptive by the parent saying, you have to do this, but you give extra tools to a teacher's school belt or a tool belt, it probably enhances the education environment. And I think what you said is so important to be able to get there to yes. open up communication. Yes. And like I said, so emails are usually a great way because there's not that pressure for the teachers to respond immediately. Phone calls are so hard for teachers to answer, especially in the middle of the workday. Um, in person, if it's before or after school, may be beneficial, but an email, you can send it off when you're ready and then the teacher can reply when they are ready. Um, so mm -hmm. I do encourage like a non-invasive way of that back and forth communication to happen. Yeah. And so you just described, you know, how to start off the year within the classroom and you know that you have the teacher and you have that opportunity to communicate needs or to communicate what existing services are out there. But you also mentioned an IEP process and maybe it's good to get a better understanding of how does somebody even qualify for an IEP and what is an IEP in general and just giving kind of that basic assumption of we're all starting from somewhere. We need to get that right. info first. Well, so let, let me kind of back up a little bit more and um, make sure that people are oriented on like the, the spectrum of supports that are available within a school system. So like there's the general ed supports, which is the larger picture. And that's where the general ed teacher is teaching the core curriculum. Within that, parents may have warning signs that their child may not be successful with just that general approach. So then there's usually like a 
tier two approach, which are more at-risk kids. Um, and that's a, usually a lower level intervention that's done within the classroom. Um, so a lot of schools have tier two interventions a lot of them for reading. So there's a huge amount there and a huge emphasis for um, reading achievement and development. And then there's lesser known um, math um, tier two supports. So honestly, the first line um, when we're looking at academic um, failures or successes is looking at a tier two approach for that. Um, a lot of our kids with autism spectrum may be perfectly fine in the curriculum piece of it. They're getting how to read, they're getting how to write, they're they're doing great there, but they're not necessarily doing well on that behavior piece, that social skills piece. So that's where it gets a little bit more complicated and where schools um, really struggle with is this specialized instruction that needs an IEP or is this a tier two support where I can put in just some modifications in the classroom, um, some really quick like social skills groups because a social skill group really is more of like a tier two intervention. It's a large group targeted intervention to a specific group of people or is this a kid that the services are so individualized and so specific that I need to tailor a curriculum to them. Therefore, they would need an individualized education plan. Um, that's where an IEP actually comes into place is when the child no longer succeeds in those general ed nor the tier two at-risk interventions and really needs specialized supports. So, uh, an IEP actually should fill that gap, but there's all of these level two interventions that sometimes are underutilized um, that really parents should be able to and willing to access. And a lot of those are accessed through a 504 plan or accommodations. Um, so trying to figure out, especially if you have a higher functioning kid, do they really need an IEP or can they succeed with just accommodations and some increased awareness on the teacher's part and making adaptations in the general curriculum? Yeah, with the assumption that the goal is, is that you have inclusivity, you have the right. child in an at least restrictive environment as possible and right. that they can be independent and that they can engage in whatever way they need to. I like the concept of, you know, let's let's work through the tiers. But I guess it, it brings up the question, does it it you've worked in the state of Utah, but I don't know if this goes beyond Utah, but is a autism diagnosis, does that qualify somebody for an IEP alone? No, it does not. Um so uh, schools, especially well, all all of the schools that have special ed supports work off of IDEA and it works off a of special ed classification. So a classification of autism is different than a diagnosis of autism. When you're looking at an IEP and an educational classification of autism, um, not only do they have the disability of autism, but they also need specialized instruction and it's affecting their academic performance. So they really have to be, um, those three tiers have to be met. If it is just an autism classification or an autism diagnosis, they may be perfectly fine in schools. Um, they may be succeeding in the academic end. Um, they may not need specialized instruction. So they really don't qualify for an IEP just because they have a medical diagnosis of autism. And it's really confusing for parents sometimes. 
Yeah, I, I would imagine. I mean, it's it's confusing for me, to be honest, is that looking at all these layers, but I think that's what you were talking about. Sometimes the right hand isn't always talking to the left hand and that there isn't that congruity between the medical world right, and the school world where the medical world is looking at all of behavioral health, how it affects everything, every component of their day, every component of their understanding, their cognition, their social development, whereas the school's responsibility would be what? Education. Like, education. Uh, honestly, it goes under those academic things. Talk to your legislature if you want to expand that beyond just academics. But that's what the core curriculum is all about is, you know, reading, writing, math. Um, they don't they are starting to increase awareness about social emotional um, understanding, um, but that's not regulated um, by legislation. And unfortunately, because it's not regulated by legislation, there's not money behind it. Um, and so that's why, I mean, even with an IEP, every IEP goal has to tie back to core curriculum. So uh, finding an IEP goal that goes along with this kid needs to make friends. And I'm not saying that they don't need to make friends and friends are very, very important for success in the schools. But Legislation says schools are for this, the academic piece, and how does that piece tie in? Um, so it, it gets a little bit more complicated. And then, Dr. T, that makes a lot of sense because right now you're seeing several different lawsuits that are occurring in different states right now that are about the utilization of a medical benefit for ABA in whatever environment it might be appropriate. So this funding structure seems to be the barrier at times to getting some of that built in, which now that you're in the clinical sphere and had lived in the educational sphere, I'm sure you see both perspectives really well and understand some of those limitations. Um, what would you be telling a family that maybe is newly diagnosed and they're concerned about their child's fit in school? I mean, what would be the approach to coaching that family so that they can enter the process of elementary school and enter into an education system? So... In general, everybody wants to help the kids. They're not in education if they don't. They're, they're not in clinical services if they don't want to help the kid. So it, it, as long as people keep that kid as the number one reason, people can be really creative on how they offer supports. Um, so I, I always like to say, I think the first approach is have an open conversation. Don't necessarily think that they're denying you services or not wanting to provide services for your child. Um, they they may just be a little bit more rigid in their thinking, like kids with autism too, but so does teachers, um, <laughs> that if you can sit down and talk to everybody, you could come up with a, a solution of, you know, the, the kid is definitely going off every time that it has to do with lunch, um, but we send all the kids to lunch. Is there a way that we could just have them eat somewhere other than the lunchroom? But it's a it's an accommodation that has to be discussed before it's just given. Um, and so parents are always the best and first advocates for their child. So that open communication is great. But teachers, for the most part, are very willing to accommodate if they know how and what's an appropriate accommodation. So yeah. um, I hope that that so if, if I was if it was my child and I was entering the school system and I just had a new diagnosis and I wanted my kid to succeed. And I, the very, very first thing I would do is introduce myself to that teacher 
be honest with the teacher saying, I'm a little bit nervous. I know that my kid has some difficulties here. Here are some things that I'd like us to communicate with. Is there a good way for us to communicate? And ask the teacher first off, how do you like communication from me? Um, and that would be a great way just to open the door for that initial in. Mm -hmm, for sure. And I mean, when you're looking at the the life of a teacher, I would imagine every single one of those things, not just is going to help the child, but it's going to help with the class management is that if you have a couple children that you haven't quite figured out how to intervene appropriately, how to modify or accommodate the right way, the whole structure of the class can be thrown off. So it's 30 right. kids affected, not just two yes. or three. So yes. I think that that open communication, most teachers value from day one in that process. Yes. But when when you're still, I mean, I always look at, okay, got this young child just diagnosed versus I've got somebody who's been in the school system for quite a while and maybe is transitioning schools from elementary to middle school, which to me, those are two different transitions. One is how do I get started on the right foot? The other one is I just entered up a new sphere of life. Middle school is yeah. hard for every child. Yes. So how is that transition for the middle schools? How do you make that that Oof. changeover where social development becomes even more confusing? Oh, so I think every parent just needs to take a deep breath. <laughs> uh, and I, I say that laughing as, as I have several teenagers um, in my own home um, and that transition from elementary to middle and then even middle to high school is so hard because um, you're even elementary to middle, you're going from one teacher that you need to communicate with to sometimes seven, eight teachers that you need to communicate with. So I, I think for parents not to get overwhelmed, as well as you have to realize developmentally, um, those seventh grade, eighth grade teachers who are getting the middle schoolers are expecting those kids to be more independent. So whatever um, ways that the parent could do more self-advocacy and transfer things to the student to advocate for their own needs and teach them, you know, teach the child how to say, hey, I need extra time on this. Um, it will always come better from the student once they hit those secondary schools than it does from a parent in those secondary schools because it's expected that the kids start to self-advocate at that point. So parents should encourage their kids at that point. I, um, but yeah. it's overwhelming too. <laughs> Sorry. Mm -hmm. No, and I actually had that same conversation with my daughter the other day and I was telling her, she's in middle school. I was like, I don't know that I'd be successful in middle school right now. It's a tough, it's a tough environment to navigate through all the social dynamics and everybody's trying to figure themselves out. Yes. So what are the differences that you often see where those tier one interventions, where yes. they're a little bit more comprehensive in elementary school, you might see more inclusion for speech services, more yeah. occupational therapy. You might see a little bit more pullout for um, maybe even focused ABA or special ed. What is it that you're seeing for the more directed service opportunities in middle school where the socialization is so hard and where that concept of uh, identity and being able to self-advocate are so important? Um, so 
I think in some ways at the secondary level, there is more opportunities for integration. So you have the core classes that, you know, if if they're academically behind in reading, writing, and math, they'll need resource supports, right? So those are actually usually a separate class. So there's less stigma um, in some ways in that secondary level to give some of these supported services. But the other cool thing is that you have these kids with special needs that now can be integrated into classes that they might succeed in, like singing or choir or art or sports or PE, that um, they now, there's no reason for them to necessarily be in a different class. They can be with their regular ed peers participating in those activities. Um, so I do think that in some ways that middle school offers more opportunities for social integration um, for kids that are on the spectrum, on any spectrum. Mm -hmm. And that integration piece, I think, is is key. And, and you actually mentioned it earlier in our conversation about inclusion, about establishing the opportunity to be a part of a mainstream environment or a mainstream classroom. What what are those benefits? I mean, what are you seeing for both both sets of students, both the ones that typically would receive service and those who aren't receiving service from having that inclusion? Okay, so Jeff, I have a wow moment for you right now, okay? So uh, when I was in an elementary school, um, I actually had two different kids. One was a sixth grader and one was um, a first grader, but I had served, I had served both of them previous years. So they had already been on my caseload. I had already known them, but the first grader was selectively mute. Um, and the sixth grader had a lot of uh, school avoidance issues, high, high levels of anxiety. Um, selective mutism also has lots of anxiety that's around that. The cool thing is that um, I was able to get permission from both the sixth grade team of supports, so his parents, the teachers, and the first grade team of supports, his parents, his teachers. And we did peer buddying um, with this sixth grader and this kindergarten student. And what was so cool about this is, I mean, yes, they both were being served in some capacity with me, but the sixth grader was not missing school on any of the days that he had peer buddying for this kindergarten student because he knew that he had to be there to support this kindergartner. Um, and the other cool thing, sorry, it was, I served him in kindergarten. This was in first grade. The other cool thing is this first grader started talking to the sixth grader, like regular, just basic conversations. And I was always in the room next door, but I wasn't always present in the game or whatever it was that they were doing back and forth. So it was so cool for me as a clinician to hear more and more and more language and to finally start and see him, the kid with a select, uh, selective mutism, open up to another kid that he found a secure person to talk to. So like when you talk about integration and you talk about um, being able to integrate more it, with creative people, you could come up with using strengths and weaknesses of various people so that everybody succeeds. And this was a success story for both that first grader and that sixth grader who both had 
anxiety issues and the first grader definitely was on the spectrum. Um, but they both succeeded in a way that was in the mainstream classroom. So that, it was is, cool. that is a wow moment. I, I love hearing these stories because it's, it's also myth busting. It's, it's helping us realize that not all intervention has to be adult driven. It can right. be adult facilitated with peers driving intervention and having this inclusion allows for everybody to benefit all yes. the time. Yes. But there's there's times where inclusion can't happen because maybe the skill set isn't quite there. What are some of the unique ways or what are some of the creative ways a school district can help support a child maybe that needs inclusion as part of their life, but can't do it alone? Are there supports out there for that? So I'm a huge advocate for peer modeling. Um, and so um, I, I Every recess group that I ever ran, um, I try to always get uh, typical peers, usually two grades above, um, to be the peer model. And I would pair them one-on-one, -on -one, honestly. Um, so if I had a first grader, they were paired with a third grader. Um, and we would all, I would usually work with um, the target student um, on a specific skill, whether that be asking a friend or whether that be turn-taking or depending on what the skill was, we would talk about it before recess. And then the peers would meet us at recess. Um, and the peers were responsible for getting them to follow follow through with whatever that new skill was. Um, and it was really, really cool because sometimes it was just on gameplay. And I know last week or um, earlier you had a podcast about how sports could be integrated. Um, and one of the cool things is when we taught the kids how to do um, a game like tag, freeze tag, and taught them all the rules of that, all of a sudden that actually was generalized so that they played it with me and the peer at first, but then on other recesses when they weren't in that structured playground, they are, the peers knew how to prompt them and they knew what the rules were so that then they had this game that they could play and could be integrated. Uh, creating community one peer at a time. I, I love the concept. I love the idea behind it. And quite frankly, I don't think it needs to end within the school borders or school walls. I think that right. these are clinical concepts that hopefully every clinician is listening to as far as how do I bring that into my treatment in the home? How do I bring that to my treatment if I'm doing center-based care? How do I get peers to interact so they're learning how to do skill, skills together? how they're learning to learn from one another versus always being adult driven. And I, I love the way that, that you took that passion of yours to put it into play. So what other recommendations? So you're sitting out here as Dr. T, you've lived all the lives. You've been out, uh, you've worked in group homes, you've early career, but you've worked in group homes, you worked in school settings, you've done psychological evaluations, you've been on an integrated team, both on a clinical level and in a school level of care. So I'd, I'd love to hear your advice on how we could do better on communicating as professionals, on being able to make sure that everything that we're working on somehow carries over from environment to environment. Is there, is there a special sauce for that? Or is there even movement in the right direction that we need to start making? Um, so I, it takes a village, right? I know that, that people joke about that saying, but 
uh, it does take a village and it does take really good communication. Um, and honestly, for generalization to happen, parents need to be proactive and get themselves involved in the therapy, get themselves involved with the schools to know what's understanding on the, on the school end. Um, and honestly, parents are probably the key gatekeeper of driving that communication because they're the ones that can provide permission for that ABA provider to talk to the schools and for the schools to talk to the medical doctors or for the schools to talk to the ABA provider. None of that can be possible without the parents. But that being said, a lot of times the parents need to also be the person who's driving those team meetings. Um, I've had some incredible team meetings where everybody is like, this kid is failing and they're backsliding. What can we do to prevent any more backslide and everybody is at the same table and we look at the residential we look at their medications we look at their programs at school as well as their programs at home and we're like okay what do we really need to focus on right now and how long are we going to implement this and then when do we come back and check in to see what we're doing is working and making an impact um, but there has to be a plan in place and it has to be everybody who has a stake with this child to be at least a voice at the table. Not everybody has to be there, but somebody who represents that person needs to be there. Now, the idea of making sure those team meetings are occurring and um, at times as a clinician, it's checking the egos at the door as you walk in yes. and realizing that, you know, you have to be an active listener and you have to yeah. hear what's happening from other perspectives to be able to collaborate on the plan. I think it's extremely valuable. I think it's valuable in schools. I also think it's valuable in the medical world. I think attending physician appointments, if behavioral health has the chance to be able to sit down and have a physician and a behavioral health care provider talking to each other. Yes. I mean, that's how you treat a child. You look from all of the perspectives and everybody's on the same page. Well, I appreciate, Dr. T, your time today. And I think that just the overarching theme of communicating of having clear expectations, but doing it in a way where it's collaborative and understanding the steps of what these tiered interventions are in order to access inclusivity. I think that those are so important. And I hope that maybe we can develop this further in future podcasts. <laughs> okay. Thank you for listening to Autism Weekly. We hope you tune back in next week to learn more about autism in the real world. Autism Weekly is now found on all the major listening apps, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Amazon Music, and more. Subscribe to be notified when we post a new podcast. Autism Weekly is produced by ABS Kids. ABS Kids is proud to provide diagnostic assessments and ABA therapy to children with developmental delays like autism spectrum disorder. You can learn more about ABS Kids and the Autism Weekly Podcast by visiting abskids.com. Thanks for tuning in. See you again next week.